We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name is Thomas, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 28th of 2021. I've had 675 days of continuous sobriety. Uh, just a little disclaimer as I begin. When I say God, I mean higher power. All of our higher powers are unique, and they are the thing that really makes this program work. I was taught to say God, and it is a habit of mine, but I want everyone to understand. I've seen California Buddhists, Mormons in Utah, and Jewish folks and every other kind of variety come into the big tent of AA and find that higher power and find sobriety and joy in their life. For those of you that might be newer and or have tried AA and says it isn't going to work for you, my response to that is it absolutely does work. In the beginning of a lot of meetings, we'll read chapter five where it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. That word rarely is our success rate. If AA is not working for us, it's probably because we're not doing the program. And I can't overemphasize uh, how I found, having come to the program in 2006 and had many years of sobriety, and then returning now with almost two years, how important it is to thoroughly follow that path. Because those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not give themselves completely to this simple program. So I'm going to spend a small part of the time, just telling you what it was like. I'm going to minimize the actual details because I was taught by a sponsor that most people in AA do look for the differences and not the similarities when they're newer. But if you stick around long enough, you'll find that we have almost all had the same common emotional experience and uh, spiritual bankruptcy. And then this program has brought us to a place of joyousness uh, freedom and and spiritual depth and connection with our higher power. So I drank normally, if at all, all the way up until my late 30s. Alcohol was really something I didn't think about it. On occasion, I would drink it maybe at a party or a wedding or something like that. But I had no alcoholism in the family. I was not exposed to it. And until about 38 or 39, it really was not an issue for me. So alcohol is always out there. Um, as a child, I was raised in a single-parent family where I learned to be a caretaker, basically, just so I could survive. I had one outlet oh, area where I could get positive reinforcement and success, and that was through schooling and education. And I wanted to do nothing but make tons of money so I would never be fearful or powerless again. So I applied myself at school, and I fed off the approval of the teachers and the professors. I graduated first in my class in high school, first in college. Uh, years later, I wound up with a graduate degree in physics and left the Midwest to find my fortune in California. So I drove out there with $300 in my pocket and along with a bunch of dreams uh, in my head. There were some minor successes and failures working as a young man in startups uh, but it allowed me access into some of Silicon Valley's biggest companies and some of the legends that we hear about and a lot of hands-on experience. And so around 1997, I started a service-based dot-com company, which greatly flourished. Uh, it was a really good company. And by 2001, I checked off all the boxes in life, or at least what they had told me. Um, I had a business, an ocean do home, my cars, blah, blah, blah. 
a child. And, uh, you know, you would think in that position, after all those years of struggling and learning and working so hard, that I would just be the happiest guy in the world. And I wasn't. I was miserable. Uh, I found myself driving around Newport Beach, California in a fancy car and a fancy suit and all the money. And, and I was in tears. I was just in tears. And I didn't understand why I wasn't happy. And I felt like my life had been pointless. It was empty. I felt like I'd been lied to um, because I was miserable and empty because there was nothing, nothing inside of me that felt good. And I see what was happening now. There's, I believe, a God-shaped hole in the human heart. Uh, It's a terrifying and bottomless abyss. And it opens up inside of us uh, this desire to fill it with anything. And it's really uncomfortable. If you're an alcoholic like me, I think you'll certainly identify that. When, When that spiritual human soul part of us is unfilled, it is just the deepest, deepest ache. And on top of that, I projected to the outer world this arrogant, impenetrable shell of what I wanted you to see. Because deep down, I know that if you knew the real Thomas and got to know who I really was inside there, that you would leave just like everybody else. Because inside, I believed that I was just this nothing. I was a a shame-filled imposter of a human being. And on the outside, there was just a show. And then I started drinking and I drank a little too much and I drank a little too much more again. And guess what? Alcohol worked, at least in the beginning. That emotional pain, that soul sickness, it eased that. I drank for emotional effect. I drank for the relief. And being the boss, you know, I could take off all the time and do whatever I want and drink a lot. I was accountable to no one and I was off to the races. And it accelerated very, very quickly. And the book, big book teaches us that uh, this is a progressive disease for those of us that are alcoholics. And it progressed uh, very quickly. And about that time, I decided that, well, obviously what I had done didn't work. And I decided to just cash in everything and start over and find myself. So I went, got a divorce and sold the business, sold the Told everything. Uh, And I had a lot of money sitting in the bank just waiting. And I traveled. And uh, I thought at the time I was just going to play life as a rock star and travel the world, which I did. But all I really did was waste and burn all of that money to the ground and find nothing. One little story, it's a little humorous. I found myself waking up on a toilet in a bathroom stall uh, in a restroom somewhere. And I checked, oh, keys, wallet, phone, credit card. Okay, great. And I'm looking under the stall and I see a bunch of feet in women's shoes. And the fog is starting to lift. And I realize that not only is this women, but they're speaking what sounds like Italian or Spanish. I have no idea where I am. And it turns out I was in a train station in Venice, Italy. And I was so out of it in such a fog for a brief moment, I I was trying to figure out how trains could go from California to Italy. I just didn't know where I was, what I was doing. Uh, I couldn't go at that time probably more than 15 minutes without drinking a shot of warm vodka out of whatever container happened to be nearby that I had stashed in vehicles, hotel rooms, wherever I was. Recently, a normie said to me or asked me, you know, why didn't you just quit? You know, and and I we face that question for those that are not alcoholic and in the program. You know, why don't you just quit? 
And, and to an alcoholic in the throes of their disease, that sounds like, well, why don't you just quit your cancering? You know, it is a medical condition. It is diagnosed by the AMA as a disease. And without this program, uh, we are powerless over it, right? That's step one. And I explained to the normie, and, and the best I, the best explanation or analogy that I could come up with was it's like this game I used to play with my daughter. And we would go under the water in the pool and play the who can hold your breath longest game. And we would hold our breath and hold our breath and hold our breath. And then you always reach this point where oh, I just got to get that air. Your lungs are burning. Well, imagine you're doing that, except the results of coming up to the surface are that you are going to be drunk and you're going to destroy parts of your life or people around you. But there's nothing inside of you that can keep you from breathing that air. It was more important than air to me. And that's what it felt like on the inside. And I was in deep, deep, deep trouble. Fortunately, now looking back, I was involved in a solo 100 per mile hour car crash and a judge saw fit to give me a court card. So I'd have to go to AA. Um, that was 17 years ago. And I'd go into the rooms and I'd stare at those 12 steps on the wall. And man, there was a lot of God up there. And I don't want anything to do with God, right? I'm a scientist. And I was looking for the differences. I didn't want to be there. And then I'd look at step three, right? Because I would just, I could do all this in a day if it was right. And I said, well, what if God's will isn't for me to make my money back or get my life back together? What if God wants me to do something else? There is no way I'm going to turn my will over to what God wants. And we talk about the gift of desperation. I wasn't really there. I knew I was in trouble, but what I thought I would do is just fine tune my drinking. I was going to be that human being that drank normally as an alcoholic, and I was going to come back to the rooms of AA, and you would all tip your hats hats to me and say, thank you. But the reality is, is I couldn't stay stopped. I just could not stay stopped. That exposure in early AA was really beneficial in the long term. I'll never forget my very first meeting. I saw just a tremendous example. There was an old timer, I guess, or somebody who had some time at least, that came into this meeting that was in the basement of a hospital. And he had just seen his son die upstairs in that hospital. And after doing whatever it is you do in those situations, he came down to this meeting, which was serendipitously serendipitously at the right time and shared. And, And he was upset, obviously. But he wasn't out of control. He wasn't needing to drink. And he shared this, just this powerful, powerful thing about how AA would walk him through anything. And, you know, I never saw that guy again, but it made an impression on me. And I started to believe that there was a solution there in AA. Maybe not for me, but these people were doing something. And and I would watch people take uh, 60-day chips, and I was just baffled. I did start the program eventually because the 15 minutes was just, I I was incapacitated. I couldn't drive. I couldn't do anything. And I was around AA though. I was not in it. AA, those meetings, I see them now as a spiritual hospital and there's surgery being performed. And if you just sit there and blend in with the wallpaper on the wall, you're going to get as much help from that spiritual surgery as somebody just watching an operation. Um, so, of course, my condition as an alcoholic re- basically remained untreated, and I moved into some some very dark thinking. 
This is just a personal belief, but I believe that hell is a detachment from others and not ever having the possibility to attach to a meaningful purpose or knowledge or any kind of higher power. And I was in that hell. And that hell included a bunch of chattering monkeys in my head forever in darkness. And and it was just too much. And it was endless. And it felt endless. And it wasn't as though I was sad or depressed, but I was just tired. I was just tired. I did not know how to do this thing called life. And I'd had a really good run, you know. Um, and so I remember sitting on the back of my pickup truck gate looking out and I took a giant handful of pills and somebody called cops or paramedics or rescue or whatever. And I remember sitting there talking to them, just saying, you know, I'm, I'm just done. I've done this. I've known this person. I've been there. You know, I've gotten more than my money's worth out of life, literally. And I just, I just can't do it anymore. And I wasn't being a danger to myself or others, so they couldn't take me. And I had this long conversation. Eventually, I did pass out from the pills. And I woke up alive in the hospital and I was angry that I was alive. Um, They had saved me. And I really, at that point, had nothing left to lose. I really decided uh, at that point in that hospital bed, I surrendered. I call it now a mini surrender, but I surrendered because I had nothing else except maybe AA would work. And to the extent that a solution became available through AA, I was surrendered to it. Uh, In retrospect, I see how that was not complete. And I'll address that a little bit later because that is the the genesis of why um, I did after quite a few years of sobriety eventually go out. But I did begin AA and I went to meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings. Meetings were my life. You know, the big book doesn't explicitly state that alcohol is bad for everyone. Uh, Instead, it just emphasizes that alcoholics, those of us who've got an abnormal reaction, um, it's dangerous to us. It's a physical allergy and a mental obsession. And we cannot drink regularly or responsibly. We do it for effect and that effect will kill us. And I learned that in those meetings after meetings after meetings. And somebody said something to me, that took a lot of the shame out of being an alcoholic because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Those were dirty old men in a room somewhere. I don't know what they were. And I I couldn't identify with that, but I could identify with this, which is that it's an illness, maybe like diabetes. It's a condition that requires daily maintenance. And there is something that you can do on a daily basis that just for that day, you can manage your diabetes and you don't ever have to have those problems again. I see now that that was exactly right. Um, The 12 Steps of AA, the big book, the fellowship, my sponsor, and my sponsee are that insulin. And so I began the practice uh, of AA. And chapter four was huge for me. And I read it and reread it and reread it because here I am, a scientist, agnostic. Uh, Yeah, I did have a church experience as a child, but that angry bearded guy up in the sky, God, did not work for me. And I read something that really stuck with me. And I wanted to share that, which is, do I believe or am I willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? And then the big book says, as soon as a man can say that he does believe or is even willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that it is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderful, effective spiritual truth can be built. Wow. That was sufficient. That was comforting. I had a chance because all I had to do was start. I just had to start. I just had to crack that door open 
And then over time, things would care for themselves. And that was a giant, giant relief. I didn't have to fall on my knees and have some vision of God. And that's what I had been waiting for. All I really needed to do was have a higher power. And somebody then suggested to me, well, why don't you just take your higher power as group of drunks, God? And it was true because I'd sit in this meeting and these people would raise their hands when they'd ask the question, do you have more than a year of sobriety? And it was just, it was baffling to me. But these people were doing something I couldn't do. As much as I had accomplished, as much as I had done with my life, including burn it to the ground, these people were doing something that I had not been able to do. So I tied this in with the belief that there really is only one truth. What I know as a scientist and what I would learn as a spiritual truth would be self-consistent. And it made me open enough to see that there might be other facets of this thing we call truth that I did not know about. You know, in physics, there's this thing called the Thevenin theorem. We use it in electronics. And you can have this really complicated circuit with wires and resistors and this thing and that thing. And you don't need to know what's inside that Thevenin box. But if you know the voltage and the amperage and a few other things that go into that box, I can tell you what's going to come out of that box. And that really clicked for me. I thought, well, AA is this Thevenin's box. I don't know what they're doing, but I see what comes out of the box. And I want, I want what comes out of that box. So knowing that higher power uh, does require a journey that transcends just that mere cognitive intellectual understanding. But I was ready to begin that journey. Um, I think one of the biggest errors in my thinking was kind of the Western cultural belief in the Descartes style, I think, therefore I am, because what that's been warped into is I am what I think. I mean, 100% of who I was was what I thought and what I could create in my mind. But I found that if I had the humility and the patience to just watch that stream of consciousness, that 98% of that conscious stream was just repetitive, useless patterns and monkeys jumping around. And it dawned on me that part of the AA program was prayer and meditation. I didn't know how to pray, and I didn't know what God or that higher power would look like, but I figured I could learn to meditate. So in addition to reading a lot of AA materials and attending a lot of meetings, I moved out to the desert, and I lived alone. I was miles away from the nearest neighbor, and I did this for the sole purpose of finding that higher power and and doing AA. And it sounds dramatic, but this is what happened. Just like I'd made my quest with alcohol, I was going to make my quest for AA. And I read in some of the AA history about uh, an unsung hero. This is one of my favorite guys. He's AA number 10. He was an agnostic. In fact, his story is in the big book. It's one of the stories. And in the early AA meetings, put his foot down as an agnostic and said, you know, you guys are telling me the only requirement to be a member of AA is to have a desire to stop drinking. And I have a desire to stop drinking. And you're doing a Christian version of this. The reason we have that phrase, God, as we understand him, because he did an honest program and it was working for him in the early days. And he didn't have the higher power like they did. And I just marvel at, you know, what kind of a person 
has the ability to sit in a room with, you know, Dr. Bob, or maybe even Bill was there from New York and say, Hey guys, it's working for me. And it's not going to be a narrow thing. It's going to be a big tent. We have this God as we understand him. And I needed that in my program. I had to work that out for myself like we all do. And that was a, a big watershed for me. So I really wanted to start from a clean slate. And I love the set-aside prayer, if you're not familiar with it. Here it is, and I, I begin most of my reading with it. God, today, help me set aside everything I know about you, everything that I know about myself, everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about my own recovery, so that I may have an open mind and a new experience with all these things. Please help me see the truth. And I've written that in the front side cover of a number of big books that I've given out. And I think that's the right attitude to bring to AA as a newcomer. So I did a lot of reading and even outside of AA and religious materials and the Bible and the Quran and, and so forth. And I learned that the fear of God that we heard, or I'll say higher power, that thing I had heard as a kid, that grandpa in the sky, that word is actually awe. Awe as something is so big and so powerful and so beyond us. And I could really plug in with that as a scientist, because if I could really understand what was going on in a simple tree or the biological software in our bodies that we call DNA, I would, it would blow my mind, you know? And so I started to thinking about, I started thinking about that this one truth that had to be self-consistent was also something that was awesome and bigger, and there must be some sort of an intelligent creator out there. So right there, my group of drunks had already grown now into some sort of intelligent creator. And that's how AA works. As we do the program, and it is a program of action, we have to do the program. We can't watch it. We can't read it. We have to do it. But more doors open, and more is revealed, and more is revealed. So in my process of meditation, I started just through the process of subtraction, because if I subtracted out everything that wasn't spiritual about me, then I would be left with the spiritual. So I got into a practice of relaxing, removing those thoughts, let those drift away, get the monkeys calmed down, letting the emotions travel away in a bubble. And I found myself watching the person that's watching this. And there was real peace there. And I believe that what was left after all that removal was that itty-bitty corroded spiritual part of me that was still left and alive. And when I got in touch with that, everything really felt okay. And pow, that serenity, that okayness with the universe is exactly what I was looking for with alcohol. Alcohol was a synthetic version of that peace that I had been running around the world to find. And here, it was inside of me all along. I wanted to share with you a story about the man who became a sponsor for me because I was out in the desert. I had mentioned away from everybody and there was only a few meetings I could get to. And there was this old guy and he would, he would stand up whenever he was asked to read the card, you know, that was chapter five, how it works. And he would set that card down and he would recite it from memory. And oh my gosh, that guy drove me crazy. I thought, oh my gosh, how arrogant is this guy? Who do you think you are? old man. You know, it's funny how we, we take everybody's inventory, but our own. Right. But in a meeting one time, he handed me his 25 year chip and he explained to me that he can't read. 
Um, this is the only way that he could be honest. Um, Cause if he holds that card in front of him, it's a visual lie and he's projecting to us that he knows how to read, which he doesn't. Uh, his name is Richard and he was my second sponsor. Uh, he died with 37 years of sobriety. And this is a man that I had nothing in common with. This guy lived up in the hills. He hunted off the land. He was an outdoorsman. Uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an indoor IT type person. We had nothing, nothing in common. But the amazing part of this is that our spiritual place was exactly the same. And here, this not formally educated, outdoorsy type person could be my spiritual mentor. And it blew me away that we had come to the same place from, from just places that weren't even opposites. They were more than opposite. And that really stuck with me. So there's a lesson in there too, which is don't take people's inventory and don't use it against them. And I've been very aware of that because we don't know what people are doing inside. But what I did learn is that we have to be honest with ourselves and worry about what we're doing. So things got a lot better. Um, I got involved in the program. I had, of course, the sponsor that I just mentioned, sponsees, and I gained some years of sobriety. Life was in session, as we say. And that really worked. And I started to rebuild from those ashes. But over time, those meetings became inconvenient. Uh, sponsees move away and you drift. And I said to myself the three most dangerous words that an alcoholic can say, which is, I've got this. And I went out. And I am living proof that starting again is a faster, uglier, and more brutal way to burn your life to the ground. I wound up in Ohio in a rural area near where my grandparents' farm had been, and I was homeless. Out in the remote woods there, you can camp for free, so that was cool. I had a tent. I told myself that I was saving money for some drunken dream and I could build another dot-com. I found a neighbor out there who was an alcoholic, and he and I drank ourselves senseless uh, every night. I didn't have the money for the beer, and he supplied it, so I had a great plan. And the next day, I'd tell him we drank it all, and he'd go out and buy some more. But looking at myself, I'm unshowered. I have to walk seven miles just to find water or go to a gym and clean up with a shower. And and the insanity of it, I'd look at myself and I'd say, oh, my God, from the outside, I look like a crazy homeless guy. <laughs> and I was a crazy homeless guy. But that is a hard lifestyle. And winter came in and it was wearing me. And I looked down at my arms and my hands and these bugs had invaded under my skin and they were infecting me and these bugs were having babies inside of me. And in a quiet moment, I realized, you know, I ceased to be an ongoing useful human concern. The only use the universe had for me was it was a breathing corpse for food for the lowest creatures out there. And in just a moment of clarity, I just let go. I let go for God. Um, it felt like standing in front of a group of people completely naked and exposed. And I did that with a higher power. And, and in a prayer, I just said, Daddy, help me. I don't know what to do. I'm going to pause a second. So that was a, a complete and gut-wrenching surrender, and it was a gift as I see it now. Um, 
I knew what I needed to do. I needed to get back to the rooms of AA. Um, I cried and I cried and I cried and I found my way not far away to Akron, Ohio, where I have uh, family and where uh, I grew up. And I went to the Alano Club there. It's hard to go back in and take that newcomer chip. But I knew that I either had to do that or I had to die. I also saw a doctor and um, it was really a relief because I had a solution. I had a medical solution. I had AA. And in fact, on that first date, it was actually October 27th, the day before my sobriety date, this doctor told me, he said, you can't take another sip of alcohol. Never can. And I hear those words in my head and I said to him, oh yeah, you're telling me that AA stuff, right? And he goes, no, I'm telling you, you cannot ever take a drink. You will die. Not one sip. And I think I had a little hidden opinion that the doctor's opinion in the big book was outdated and there was wiggle room in there. And here, this was real and present and current. And I'm so grateful for that doctor who told me currently medicine as a doctor, not telling me from AA, but medically that I could not drink ever again. In fact, in the cover of my big book, I have taped in there the sticker for the prescription that he gave me to kill the bugs that were living inside me. And I look at that on occasion and remember where alcohol takes me. So I went into the Alano club and I took the newcomers chip and it's an old school meeting. And I asked permission to share for one purpose only. And that was, as I'm back in AA and I've been around a while and I need to find a hardcore old school person that will be my sponsor. And after the meeting, someone came up to me and he was my sponsor for quite a while after that. His name was Doug. And this guy's arms were as big around as my legs, man. This guy was a football player who liked to go out and beat up cops. And he had 30 plus years of sobriety. And he asked me a question. He said, what are you willing to do to be sober? And the right answer to that question, by the way, is I'm willing to go to any lengths. And that's exactly what I told him. And I was willing to go to any lengths. I had been sufficiently beaten to be teachable. And then he said, you know, AA works 100%. So when you're telling me that you're a retread and you're coming back in here, you're telling me one of two things. You're telling me that either you're insane or that you didn't do something right. And you don't look insane to me. So what didn't you do right? And that's what we started working on. And I'll give you a little foreshadowing where I'm going, but it is incredibly important that we maintain our spiritual condition. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And that's what happened. And I had to develop a daily practice to maintain that condition. And I'll talk about that in a little bit here. Doug would always say to me, when you share in meetings, stand up, tell them what you did. Action, not what you're thinking, not what you're feeling. Tell them what you did today to stay sober. And then sit down and shut up and listen to when people tell you what they did today to, t- to stay sober. And I really appreciate that about Doug because that's what we're really doing there in those meetings. We are sharing our strength hope and experience so that we can stay sober today. And he would often say, you know, the person with the most sobriety in the room is the one who got up earliest that morning. And that's not to say that having time isn't important because you do learn a lot of things on the way, but it is a daily reprieve. 
there are hard moments, but it gets easier. And being sober is so much easier than what I was doing. So I went after the program in a way that I had never had. I was voracious in consuming the literature. I was in the birthplace of AA so I could go to the AA number one meeting, which still meets continuously. And this program works. And all you have to do is do it. So for the newcomers or folks that might be newer to this program that are listening to this, I I wanted to mention three things. And that's the honest openness and willingness or how H-O-W. You see that on the walls of some of these Alano clubs. This is the only thing that's really required to get started. AA teaches us that alcohol is a progressive disease and it is fatal and it is a trap. Uh, This is the only disease that actually lies to you. It tells you that you don't have it. But if one can be very honest, honest with themselves, and then be open to something new, a different way, and then willing to try anything, which I became willing only after burning my life down twice, then you are on your way. In relation to the newcomer, you don't have to do all of these steps in a day. Of course not. It is a series of actions that we go through to learn. I like to tell people, like I've heard in meetings, that step one is the only step that we have to do perfectly. And that is that we have to be surrendered. We have to absolutely be surrendered. And I find that the quality of my sobriety has everything to do with how much I am surrendered. I like to use the analogy of somebody that grew up in a parachute factory, family business, and they saw all the stuff that happened behind closed doors where maybe a cigarette got put out on a parachute or it wasn't tied right or there's some something wrong with it. And then you find yourself in an airplane one day with those same parachutes and the plane's going down, the pilot's already gone, and now you've got to make a choice. Do I go down with the plane or do I try this parachute? And that parachute, of course, is that religion of childhood. And you don't have to try the exact same thing, but you do have to put on that parachute and you've got to surrender and you've got to jump and you've got to be 100% completely in this program because you're trapped in this burning aircraft. There is no door number three. There's door number one, which are doing the 12 steps of AA. There's door number two, which is death or jails or institutions. And then door number three doesn't exist. Step two is really, really easy if it's presented in this way to a newcomer, which is your job is just to evaluate us. Do the 90 meeting in 90 days. Do these people have a solution? Are these people doing something that is, are these people doing something that is keeping them sober? You don't have to have the whole program worked out. You just have to come to believe that there's a power greater than yourself that can make your life work restore you to sanity. That's what sanity means is just right action. So those two things are so critical for the newcomer. And then to understand that AA is a program of action. Each of these steps has an action verb in it. The steps are done in order. They're done with a sponsor. I know this sounds kind of preachy, but if you're alcoholic like me, you must choose to do these steps and maintain them or die, period, end of story. The good news is is that it's possible to do the practice without fully believing the practice. And by cleaning out the spiritual gunk, which is what's really happening, we will guarantee you that you have this spiritual awakening. Well, how do I know this? Well, just read step 12. It starts out, 
having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. In fact, the original Big Book manuscript is more adamant. It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action. But either way, start doing these things with a sponsor. Yes, it's a bit of monkey see monkey do in the beginning, but it will literally save your life. What I use in my role as a sponsor is the 12 and 12, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. I read through that with my sponsee. Um, there's a thing called a little red book. It's available in Akron. I don't know if it's available nationwide, probably. And then, of course, the big book. I'm a big fan of Father Martin, so I have sponsees listen to his step one, step two, step three. Um, he's got a clarity and simplicity to his program that just is absolutely wonderful. And then I introduce what I was introduced to in Akron uh, is the four absolutes. There was a period in AA before the big book was written where they were flying blind. And if you go into the archives in Akron, there's a stained glass window in the front, and it's the four absolutes. In fact, they have 12 and 12 and four meetings, which are 12 steps, 12 traditions, and the four absolutes. Um, These are moral yardsticks. And if you listen to Dr. Bob's last talk that he gave, he talks about the four absolutes as being a moral yardstick. And there are four words, and each of them have a question. And I incorporate this into what I teach and what I do on a daily basis. First of these is honesty. And you ask yourself this simple question, is this thing true or false that I'm contemplating? And then unselfishness, the question there being, how will it affect the other fellow? And then love, which is, is this thing ugly or beautiful? And and this is not pretty or uh, that kind of sense, but it's the ick factor. It's that thing feel icky or dirty or creepy. And then the fourth one is purity. Is it right or is it wrong? And it was explained to me as if this action were told to your grandmother or it was on the front page of a newspaper or the front page of a website, would you be proud of that? And that those four things... Dr. Bob said, you know, if you go through that list, at the end of it, you're pretty close to what you should be doing. And hey, by the way, that's God's will. And that's what we're supposed to align ourselves with in this program. Um, I've added to others, and this is just a personal thing, take it or leave it. I've added the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you want done unto yourself. And then the last one is a categorical imperative, which basically says that if everybody acted in this way, would the results be good or bad? And that's where we get the tragedy of the commons. You know, if everybody threw their trash in the center of the town, would that be a good thing? You know, it's not such a big deal if I do it, but if everybody does. So this moral code leads to good decisions. And the cool thing is good decisions give you fewer frustrations and sobriety. So it's just easier to stay sober. You know, a lot of what we do uh, is our own cause. Uh, What do I do on a daily basis? And what are regular thoughts that I have in my practice? Because I am convinced that this daily reprieve requires spiritual maintenance, having not done it. And so I do this on a daily basis. Number one, well, and what do I do? I do everything that begins with a one in the steps. That's one, 10, 11, and 12. One, I make sure that I am fully surrendered. I remember that. Remember where I was. And then I'm grateful. And then I think about how I can allow that gratitude to be an action for the day. And then it's really a simple matter of cleaning the house. 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12. It's a cycle every day. 10 is just a mini four. It's a a mini inventory. And that allows me to not let the wreckage of today 
become the wreckage of my future, which becomes a wreckage of my past. And now I'm back out there drinking and running and gunning. In step 11, I really only pray for one thing, and that's knowledge of my higher power's will, and then the power to carry that out. This daily cleaning and maintenance allows this communication channel with our higher power to be open. And you'll start to realize, hopefully like I did, that there's really only one thing, and that's your higher power's will. There is either a higher power or there is not. And that higher power is going to prevail. So by molding my intentions and my emotions to this will, I automatically have joined a winning team. I mean, sober living is not just about being dry. It's about adapting these principles in all of our affairs and being in alignment with this higher power. And you can't lose. When I was first in AA, I was afraid to do the program. I was afraid to get a sponsor. Now I'm afraid to not do the program because I'm going to be off the winning team. And it's really that simple. My sponsor now and his sponsor, who have more than 70 years between them, claim that they've never seen anyone go out who's been actively involved in service. So I read the big book. I do my 12 and 12. I go to meetings. And then I am of service. I think service is very important. Other helpful things that I do, not necessarily daily, but I am always cognizant that expectations are just premeditated resentments. Really, everything is as it should be and has to be and will be. And I go back to that awesome feeling about the divine creator for me, my higher power. The other thing that I found incredibly helpful is the nine step promises. Using those backwards as a barometer to evaluate the program that I'm running because we're promised these things. And I've come to believe that we're promised these things. I, I remember watching a gentleman in a meeting pounding the table saying, I guarantee you these will come true if you just practice this program. And I used to think, oh man, you are so lucky. You must just have some family taking care of you. But it's true. They do work. And if I go through there and I look and see if this is not coming true for me, then this is a gap in my program and I need to work on it. When I came back in the program, I had none of those promises. And a brilliant thing that my current sponsor recently asked me to do is to look at these promises and see how I'm doing. There's 12 promises, by the way. So being a numbers guy, I gave each of them 10 points. And month by month, I graded myself. And you have to be careful when you read them because it doesn't say, for example, oh, you won't have economic security. It says fear of economic insecurity. And I've gone from literally a zero to five, six points short of a perfect score. And I know the things that I need to work on partially because of, of doing this ninth step work. We're also sure that we should be joyous in this program. On page 133 of the big book, it says to us, we're sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. It's not just happy, joyous, and free. It's we are sure that he wants us to be that way. If we are not experiencing that joy of existence, then why are we doing this program? Bill writes about, in uh, as Bill sees it, that there is a progression of an alcoholic that is different yet better than a normal person that hadn't become an alcoholic. And what I mean by that, let's say that suppose I'd never started drinking in my late 30s and I had gone on with my career, and or not necessarily career, but with my spiritual life. I would have been on some trajectory, but having been an alcoholic 
it gave me the opportunity to learn different facets of this life that I would have never been exposed to. And yes, I had to go take those steps down and painful as they were, my higher power brought me back. And now I'm beyond in spiritual growth where I would have been. And I can actually say that I am grateful, truly grateful that I did go through those experiences. I wouldn't want to do them again. I wouldn't wish them on anybody, but my higher power in that infinite wisdom knew that the only way to get my attention was to hit me with a big two by four. So now those tears of sadness and frustration that I used to have, they're actually tears of joy. I used to think tears of joy was a Hollywood trick. I thought it was a construction like, you know, the tooth that sparkles uh, in a movie. You know, that doesn't happen. I never knew that happened. And it happened to me. It was the strangest, wonderful, most joyous thing. And, you know, it's important for us as we gain time in AA to, to work on that because this is a program of attraction rather than promotion. And I thought that being sober would be boring. How would I ever get that girl to dance on the dance floor? How would I ever get that business deal signed without taking the customer out for dinner and drinks? How would I deal with just the social situations or the unease? Well, sobriety is actually more exciting and I can do more things and my life is more full now in other ways than it was before. So it's important for us to work on this joy and happiness and freedom. And the newcomers will see that. And then they will want what we have. But why would they want what we have if we're living in sobriety just dry? So doing these dailies, doing the semi-annual or annual step four house cleaning, everything that these books tell us to do is what we should do. And with that, I think I'm pretty much done. Thank you, Thomas. I did not Thank know you. what I was getting into when uh, you started. And my mind is all over the place with so much wisdom. I did not ever hear about the four absolutes. I feel a little sheepish about that. <laughs> so uh, just just a little side thing. You can still buy them from Akron and Cleveland online at the central office. And they're so old, they don't even have the GSO stamp because the GSO didn't exist. But they're in the stores. And I, I, as, a, as a personal hobby, I'm trying to collect all that literature. I'm out in Salt Lake now. I, I sorely miss Akron, but I'm trying to get a library of that stuff. There's a ton of good old school stuff. So thank you. I'm, I'm glad you got something from that. You're such an overachiever. I think I can summarize you <laughs> as, I mean, you have to, you're such an overachiever that for AA, you even have family from Akron. You know what I mean? I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I, I love the old school stuff. And Robert, as my sponsor, I, who I, I think you did, Robert, a couple months ago, I heard him share and he's very much about that. And our success rate is contingent upon these principles. And he and I want to do everything possible to, to get back to that. So yes, absolutely. Thank you. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> you got me all excited about AA. See, I do this and then I'll never sleep for three days. <laughs> well, at least it's early. All <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> okay. So this guy, Richard, stands up and reads from memory and you're thinking what a cocky asshole when in reality he cannot read. Correct. I am never going to forget that story. It's just such an amazing reminder to 
mind your own business and not judge other people. Like you said, take other people's inventory. But in all of life, just do not judge. You have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, there, there are times that I share that story and I just, I, I, I cry from joy. And I know that that man died sober and he did it. You know, what a, what a beautiful example he left for me and us. Yeah. So you're a graduate, you're a, mentioned many times that you're a scientist, but not just any kind. You have studied physics and your 35-year-old self looking at yourself today would say what? My 35-year-old self looking at me? Today. That's an awesome question. Give me a second here. Um, I would, I would, I, I would, I was very materialistic. So I would say that person would see me not as a failure, but just not having, you know, very judgy, not having everything that they were supposed to have done in life and some sort of kind of weird spiritual weirdo that had just sort of missed the boat and he would be fine. But, you know, this guy's in low gear and I, you know, he's got nothing for me. I was so into myself and my arrogance that I couldn't see even value in other people outside of how I could make money from you or learn something from you. And there was, there was zero spirituality. So I I would have definitely looked down on this person that I am now. And I would not have been able to hear anything of what I'm saying now. Literally I was, it would have been impervious to it. And what would you say to that guy? Wow. I, I would I would say what I addressed uh, in the in in the little newcomer uh, part that I said, which is, you know, if you're an alcoholic like me, you will find that this alcohol is a progressive problem, and that it is a fatal problem. And even medical science outside of AA will tell you that you are on a one way journey. And I beg of you to be fearless and thorough to look at the evidence and start this practice because it will save your life. And just be open enough. Bill Wilson, uh, when he went back to New York, had zero success with getting people because he was hitting the spirituality thing hard and people weren't ready for it. And then when he, he went back to Silkworth and said, you know, why am I having problems getting people to understand this program because it does work. And so forth advised him, you know, you need to tell them what a corner they've been boxed into and how that there is no other choice. Uh, so I think that's what I would, I would tell that, tell that person. In fact, uh, something from step two comes to mind from the 12 and 12, which is how you can, let me just find it here and I'll read it. Most AA newcomers are confronted with this dilemma and they say, look what you've people done to us. You've convinced us that we're alcoholics and our lives are unmanageable. And we're going to be in this state of helplessness forever. What are we to do? So it's very important to get, that's why I said that surrendering 100%. Uh, you know, some people aren't ready yet. They're not teachable yet because they haven't come to that point. Uh, that's what I would tell that person. Hmm. How long were you out there? So you originally sober in 2006, about how long from your first drink to, to the bugs under the skin, which is so disgusting. Uh, So, so the second period of drunkenness, how long did that last? Yeah. 
Uh, I'm going to say it took me 18 months to become homeless. So, so you have two, almost two years of sobriety. So 675 days and you were homeless. So two years ago this time you were homeless with bugs under your skin. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Where I'm going with this is that you were just married like a day ago. Yep. I mean, that's a big turnaround in one's life. Oh, yeah. Again, overachiever. So I want to share you a little bit with the story because I completely surrendered. Absolutely completely surrendered. And every decision that's come to me or pain, I've turned it over. And I was not told this, but I had heard in the rooms of people who were single for a year, their first year of sobriety. And I did that just because I didn't ever, ever want to drink again. And so I did not do any dating, nothing for a year. And I moved out to Utah and had a little bit more than a year. And Christmas day, I went to a meeting and there was a woman at that meeting. And I, I don't ask women for dates in AA, but she asked me out. And our first date was on New Year's Eve into January 1st. And nine months later, we're married. And it sounds fast, but being in the program, having gone through all of this separately yet together, there's no question in my mind that this is a lifetime knot that's been tied. And it is, it is such a blessing that my higher power, if I just surrendered, he would put those people in places in my path of what I really needed. You know, because what father is not going to feed his children if they're sincere? I just read that today in my morning readings. Oh, really? Yay. Yes. How about that? And 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 uh, my my wife often says when she prays that she talks to him and thanks him because she says, "What parent doesn't want to be thanked?" Aww. She thinks that's her secret weapon is thank dad. I'm like, well, that's cool. Of course, <laughs> I want my daughter to thank me. We got to get on her on here next. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so is there anything that you're thinking of now that you haven't shared yet or that you'd like to share? I think that being fearless and thorough from the start and doing the honest, open, and willing is absolutely necessary. And I know I've shared that, but where I'm going with that is is that I want to beg anybody who might have this problem we beg of you to be fearless and thorough because I wasn't thorough. And even though I did get a number of years of sobriety through the program, it was not a lasting, sustainable, permanent sobriety. I live and believe in a permanent sobriety as long as I do my dailies. I'm not cured, but I have recovered to a way of life like a diabetic can that works for me. All right, Thomas, I'm going to ask you a hard question because you're an overachiever and I think you can answer it. Uh-oh. I'm pivoting on my normal final question because you already answered my normal final question with your share. For the person listening that wants to surrender but doesn't know how and can't seem to do it, what advice would you like to leave with them? I, I think this is addressed in the 12 and 12 in that, it talks about, let me see if I can find it. Here it is. Um, you know, we have to hit a bottom. Few people are really going to sincerely do this pro- program unless they've hit a bottom. And that sounds really harsh, but some people are not ready yet. And there's sometimes nothing I can say 
outside of show an example and relate my story about how I had to hit a bottom and that they don't have to. And I would suggest that they, if they're trying, you know, to, to reach out to individual individuals that have sobriety that they like, that they want to have, they want what they have and talk to them about what that bottom is. And they don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. And we all have different levels of bottom and it's not a test, but Doug in Akron, he used to be the manager of the first Alano club, right? He, he wasn't the first manager, but it was the first Alano club and he was a manager. And he said, some of the old timers would say, well, then just go back out there and drink. And when you're sufficiently teachable, come back. Now I'm not that harsh, but we need to understand what a bottom is. And without that desperation, the words don't really matter. So I would suggest to them to really understand what the bottoms look like for those that are alcoholic and have recovered and then examine their own lives. And they don't have to go any further down starting today right now. And that's where the sharing of the group is important. And I think the sharing one-on-one, you talk to five or six alcoholics that have double-digit sobriety about their bottoms, and I think you'll come away with a better attitude. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.